Hi guys, this is Kylie. Welcome to this week's podcast, God is Real, God is Good. Today I have with me Mike and he's going to share his awesome testimony. Um, So let's just start with a quick word of prayer. Um, Dear Lord, um, thank you for giving us people to interview, um, that we may bring glory to your name and that people may see that you are real and good and working in people's lives still today. Please guide me and Mike as we do this and just give us the words to say um, that we may give all the glory back to you and just be with us as we speak. Amen. Amen. All right. So, um, yeah, so where are you from, Mike? Uh, originally from Racine, Wisconsin. Okay. So it's a small town of 100,000 people. Oh, wow. <laughs> in between Chicago and Milwaukee. Oh, wow. That's not small, but okay. <laughs> it, it is when you live in between Chicago and Milwaukee. Okay, probably. Probably. So much like Kuski's in between Kamii and in Grangeville, that's kind of how Racine is in between Milwaukee and Kenosha, about the same distances. Okay. So they're very short drives. Okay, yeah, yeah. Huh. Downtown Milwaukee from Racine is 20 minutes. Oh, wow. That's and not downtown Chicago is 40 minutes. Oh, so. wow. I was recently in Chicago when I came back from school, and it did not seem small, but if you say, <laughs> if you say something in that area small, I'll believe you. All right, and then um, just a little bit about your like religious background and upbringing. So I was um, raised in a what they call a Christian home. My mm. parents would tell you they're Christian, but there's uh-huh. no practice, no going to church, no yeah, uh, real. They just they fruit believe. Yeah, they believe God exists, but that's it. But that's it. All right. Anything more you wanted to share about that, or you just want to jump right into? I will. I will share more as we talk about my the story that God has given me. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, we can jump on into it. I have yet to hear this, um, so excited to hear it too. Well, I was like I said, born and raised in Racine, Wisconsin. Um, my mom and dad. My mom was young; she was seventeen when she got pregnant with me, and. Oh, wow. My grandma um, told her and my dad that they had to be married before I was born. So they got married mm-hmm. when my mom was eight months pregnant with me. Oh, wow. So just right uh, before you were born. Yes, right before I was born. And their marriage lasted a total of three years. Oh. And, um, well, probably even less than that because three years is when it was finalized. So I never knew them mm-hmm. being together. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, I really didn't know my dad that well until I was about 10 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it was always just uh, my mom and her boyfriends. And after she got divorced from my dad, she didn't live a very good lifestyle. She was heavily into drugs and alcohol and partying. And mm. so uh, yeah, definitely like you're saying, definitely not a Christian home. No, no. My two uncles, one of them's in prison. Uh, he's got 40 years in prison for selling drugs. Oh wow! For manufacturing and selling drugs, and we lived in a house with them. Mm-hmm. And so we were known as the party house in yeah. our town. For a very long time, and this is the mid seventies to the mid eighties. So, yep, lots of drugs then. <laughs> yes, yes, very crazy lifestyle. Um, when uh, I was six years old, my little brother Adam, who I thought was the best thing ever, um, he was. Well, I was five when it first happened. He he was just a baby and at a party. Um, a very large man sat on him because he was drunk and didn't see him and caused a bunch of brain damage. And then he only lived nine months with that brain damage. And then one one night he went to sleep and didn't wake up. Oh, my goodness. They called it Sid. So that's the first time I remember (laughs) being angry. Yeah. I would be 
Oh my goodness. I, I remember being angry at the world, being angry if God existed at God, being angry at my mom. Yeah. Um, and I have severe ADHD. Mm -hmm. I'm super hyperactive. Uh, can't pay attention to anything. And especially when I was a little kid like that, I couldn't. Yeah. And then I became angry. Oh. And so I would throw temper tantrums and it was very hard for my mom to control me. She thought it was a bright idea to put me in Taekwondo. And so oh. she taught an angry hyper kid how to fight. Oh. Um, that just got worse. And then when I was 10 years old, my little brother, um, Tommy was born. Uh, and I had another brother, David, who was born two years before that. And David was born and spent the first year of his life in the hospital. Oh. And then Tommy was born and he was sick. And so my mom was like, I have two sick babies and this out of control hyper kid mm -hmm. that I can't control. So she had too much on her plate. She packed my bags. One day I came home from school and my bags were packed at the door. And she said, you're moving in with your dad. Oh, goodness. Well, I don't even really know my dad at this point. Oh, wow. And so I moved in with my dad and my dad lived in one of the worst neighborhoods in our city, um, it was projects. Oh, wow. They were all apartment projects, and we were um, one of the only white families oh, wow. that lived in it. So, so I, I moved into a predominantly um, black neighborhood mm -hmm. as the only white kid. Oh, goodness. Did and that super cause, small. Mm -hmm. Did this cause more problems for you? Uh, yeah, it, it did for a long time because... Um, my freshman year in high school, I was only five foot tall oh, wow. and um, 90 pounds, but my mouth thought I was like <laughs> six to 250. <laughs> so I got in a lot of fights. I got in a lot of um, trouble mm -hmm. right away. Uh, and um, it, it was very hard because I'd been in Taekwondo since I was six. And then when I moved with my dad, um, his friend owned a kickboxing studio. And so he was like, oh, well, Taekwondo wasn't working. We'll put you into kickboxing. Oh. And so. Um, now you're learning a different way to fight. Now I'm during, yes. And getting into lots of fights and um, just living a life that was super crazy already at 10, 11, 12 years old. The first time I got convicted of a crime, I was 11. And I actually didn't do anything wrong. Oh. <laughs> we got accused of stealing a dog. Oh, wow which we had found on the way home from school. We had put posters up all over the place saying, hey, we found this dog. Took a picture of it, like, you know, put posters up. Uh -huh. That's actually how the police found us because they found one of the posters. Are you serious? Uh, and then because this guy was a mailman and we were from this bad neighborhood, yeah. they believed him saying that we had to steal him out of his yard. But yet you put up posters. But yet we put up posters. Yeah. So everything that that neighborhood had taught us, all the older um, gang members in that neighborhood, was never trust the police, never trust the government. Mm -hmm. Well, all that came true at 11 because yeah. we got found guilty and given probation at 11 years old oh for goodness. stealing a dog that we didn't even steal. Yeah. And so it was just like, that, at, that, as an 11-year-old, you're like... Well, if I'm going to be in trouble for stealing, I might as well steal. Yeah, that had to like add to your anger. Like, I'm angry just hearing this story. Like, it added to my anger, and it also added to believing in what the older guys in the neighborhood said, mm -hmm. that, that the government's against you, the police yeah. are against you. And it's like, yeah, of course they are. Look what just happened. Uh, and so one thing that I was really good at, even though I was really small, as I was super athletic, very fast, like I'm still fast for... Uh, an old out of shape guy, but I was super fast as a kid and I could climb anything. Mm. And so the guys in the neighborhood realized that they could use that. And so I 
they would pay me $100 to break into buildings and just open the door for them. Oh, wow. And so I could justify it. Well, I'm not stealing. Yeah. I'm just opening the door. That's a good deal anything. for you. I mean, yeah, for a poor kid coming yeah. from a project who has no money, uh, no social structure. My dad's only rules were basically leave him alone and fend for yourself. Nice. And nice. don't get in trouble at school. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even with morals, like that sounds like a tempting offer, like $100 for like, yeah. Yeah, so it became very easy to break into things. Well, at this time, um, my freshman year, my eighth grade year and freshman year in high school, there was a gang war going on in our area. Oh. And there was over 300 homicides committed in a couple year span between these two gangs. And it was very bloody and very violent and... Um, the older guys in the neighborhood realized very quickly that selling guns was very profitable. Oh. And so we started breaking into houses, stealing guns and selling them mm -hmm. and making quite a bit of money. Mm -hmm. Actually making a lot of money for yeah. a young kid. Uh, first time I got caught with a gun, I was 15. They sent me to Ethan Allen School for Boys, which is a juvenile prison. Okay. And the most violent place I've ever seen in the United States. Oh, wow. Like it was super violent. Um, I was in a fight the first 10 minutes I got there just solely because I was white. Oh, wow. And it was... Um, so you were probably a, like a minority, like white... Oh, hardcore minority yeah. in prison. Yeah. And But I came from an all-black neighborhood. Yeah, like so it you, wasn't, for yeah. you it was like, okay. Um, but for them, they're like, what's this white boy doing yeah. here? It was, it was a very different lifestyle. Uh, very violent. I was there for nine months, got out, and went right back to the same stuff because there was no rehabilitation it mm. was literally just trying to keep us from killing each other for oh, nine wow. months more than because anything they had else. no control there's no control they yeah. couldn't control us there was very limited things they could do to us as kids mm -hmm. uh and we could do whatever we wanted basically i mean they'd put us in segregation and solitary confinement and things like that but when you have the majority that just doesn't care and yeah. none of the kids care mm. um so I didn't do very well in high school because of that. I was always skipping school. Um, I had three quarters of a credit by the end of my freshman year in high school because I had spent so much time in detention and oh, juvenile wow. prison that I just very easily gave up on school, even though I had to go. So I would go to school because I was forced to, but I didn't do anything. Yeah. And then at 17, um, I got into into another group of guys from the same neighborhood and we just got very terrible mm. <laughs> we we're terrible people we didn't care about anybody else but ourselves oh wow um we at this point were so out of control we didn't have parents that loved us we didn't have other people that were around us mm -hmm. um and so we just did what we wanted at 15 when i first got in that trouble my dad met a woman um, he had never been remarried up to this point, met a woman and believe it or not, moved to Emmett, Idaho. Oh my goodness. Uh, from Wisconsin. Yeah. So the first thing I knew about Idaho was my dad abandoned me to there. So I like, hated it. <laughs> so that wasn't a very good it start. It was not a good start. And, uh, so at 15 years old, I found myself in an apartment in that projects by myself abandoned. Oh, wow. And so it was very easy to slip into, well, I need to make money. I need to mm -hmm. uh, do whatever I need to do. Even though my mom tried to take me in, she had just gotten remarried to my oh. stepdad, who was an MP in the Marines, military police. So he was very rigid, very hardcore, and I was out of control my whole life. Yeah, so, so that was not sounding good to you. And we did not have a very good relationship for a long time. Probably not. Um, no. 
I was very much already in an act of rebellion, and so he he did not like that. Yeah. So we butted heads a lot. But I mean, you hadn't ever had anybody to really tell you what to do, and then he probably steps in and wants to do that. No, not yeah. He did. He did want me because it hurt my mom a lot, and that's all. That's what he cared oh, about was yeah. me hurting my mom, and so. Um, they tried, but I was already too out of control. And then our senior year in high school, I had just turned 18, and we got our safe house where we kept all the guns got raided. Oh, no. And um, we all got locked up, and all of my friends, and I remember my family abandoned me, so I was running with my street friends. Well, they all told on me. Oh, wow. That's... And so the detective comes in with this big stack of paperwork, and he slams it on the desk after I'd been there sitting in a holding cell for 24 hours, and he said, I don't even need you to make a statement. I got all your friends to tell on you. Oh, wow. Did and they tell so on each other or just like... They just basically, on each other, but they basically named me as the kingpin because I planned on how to break into all the places, oh. and so... Even though I was one of the youngest, uh-huh. I was the one that took most of the blame. I see. And so at 18 years old, in the middle of my senior year in high school, I was facing 85 years in prison. Holy cow. Because they charged us with every gun that was stolen. Oh, and they wow. charged They just trumped up all these big charges. Yeah, which... That's, against you. That's kind of crazy for an 18-year-old. You're looking at basically the rest of your life. Yeah. And when I'm in the middle of my senior year in high school, so it's not, I wasn't even graduated you're, yet. You're I was still, still like a child, basically. Yeah. Yep. I was big by this time. I had reached a whole five foot, 420 pounds. So I was <laughs> this giant. Um, I remember that they gave me a deal. They said that if I pleaded guilty to these charges, they would only give me nine years in prison. Which nine is much years better than 80. Or 85. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's how they, that's how they get you to do it. Yeah. You know, when you don't have representation and you don't have anybody in your mm -hmm. corner, it's what you do. Um, so I'll backtrack a little bit. The only religious, um, person in my life, the only person that knew God was my grandma mm -hmm. and she came from a Southern Baptist church. Okay. And, and she, that's your mom's mom? My mom's mom. And she would pick me up and take me to Awana's. Okay, I used to go to Awanas. Yeah, so she'd pick me up and take me to Awanas. That was the only thing I knew as a kid about the church, is uh -huh. I would go to Awanas, and every once in a while my grandma would take me to like Easter or Christmas. Uh, and the thing I knew about Awanas is if you learned, if you memorized scripture, you get candy. Yeah. I'm like, well, I'm a poor kid, so candy's <laughs> like, this is how I get candy. <laughs> that's great. Um, so that's the only thing I really knew about church. I remember at 11 years old, my grandma took me to the church and they showed this movie series called a thief in the night. And it's like this old series and it just scared me into like, Oh, oh I want to get baptized because uh -huh. I don't want to go to hell. Yeah. And so I was baptized when I was 11, but it was because I was scared, not because I knew God. Yeah. Like, yeah. And so I had those church friends that I developed at Awana's. And then when I was 15, everything keeps coming back to this moment as 15. I remember deciding like, Oh, I'm going to go with my street friends and not, talk to them mm. from church anymore and so um from 15 to 18 was just those horrible years i was talking about there's so much stuff i left out that was crazy i mean i did drugs and drank every day mm -hmm. from probably 13 14 all the way until i went to prison oh, and wow. uh it was just a crazy life that i lived with basically no rules but what we made Mm -hmm. um, we called it a no fear lifestyle. So if there was anything we were afraid of, we like made each other face it. That's yeah. Basically. Some fear is good. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. But we were jumping off like 80 foot cliffs into water and oh my goodness. free climbing 
uh, eight story buildings and oh, wow. just doing anything that was, you know, considered yeah. crazy. That's how, that's how we lived fight over anything. And so I'm here 18 years old with nine years in prison on my way on the prison bus. And I remember thinking, Man, I am a 120-pound white boy that looks like I'm 10 going to prison. Oh, good. And the only thing I know about prison is Ethan Allen was super violent and what you see in movies. And I'm like, this uh-huh. is not going to end well for me. No. So I remember I formulated this plan because, you know, I'm this super smart guy, as you can tell by my decisions, um, <laughs> that I would just make a name for myself and, you know, people would know, leave him alone. So I was in prison about a week and we were watching Monday Night Football. I can remember it. Like, I can envision it right now. Like, it just happened yesterday. And we're watching Monday Night Football, and it was San Francisco versus Dallas. It was when those teams actually mattered when they were good. And we were watching it in the day room where everybody's out there together, and this big guy gets up, and he turns the TV to a Lifetime movie. Oh, boy. (laughs) Like, in this men's prison. So another guy uh, changes it back, and this guy gets up again. And I don't know if you've ever seen those bodybuilders that they're, like, traps are so big like their arms can't go all the way yeah. down they're just like huge they stick out <laughs> to the side but then they have them little chicken legs that yeah. are like this big huge bodybuilder well that's this guy right so he gets up and he turns it back to the movie and he says um if anybody touches this tv again i'm gonna break their fingers this is what we're watching uh-huh and so he went and sat down i remember thinking oh this is my chance right here uh-huh so i get up and i turn the channel and he gets up and he's like who did that and i remember i walked up to him and i looked up and it was like this guy was like six three six four two fifty at oh, least wow. like solid muscle big yeah. huge. and i'm five foot four hundred twenty five. i remember just looking up and he was twice my size and i thought oh crap i'm dead <laughs> like literally i'm dead this yeah. guy's gonna kill me but I know I'm faster than him, so if I punch him first, it'll at least look good. Yeah. Right? And so I did. I punched him as hard as I could right in the mouth. You know when you punch somebody in the face like their head's supposed to move? Uh-huh. I punched him as hard as I could, and he just grunted. He was just like, huh. Because <laughs> you're like, And he didn't even move. Oh, my he didn't goodness. even. I've hit brick walls that moved more than this guy moved. Like, oh. he just looked at me, and I thought, oh, man, I'm really dead. Like, I yeah. didn't hurt this guy. You didn't even phase him. And but I'm faster than him. So if I hit him twice, it looks better than if I just hit him oh. once, right? So, so, do, oh so no. I hit him again as hard <laughs> oh as I no. can. And uh, he just grunts again. And then he did something that decidedly made me worse. Uh-oh. He turned around, walked up to the guard, and told on me. <gasps> oh, wow. He doesn't... And so He didn't do any re- retaliation. He told the guard. So I go... And when you get in trouble in prison, they send you to solitary confinement, and then you hear... you. They give you a ticket... And you go to a hearing board, and they look at all the circumstances, and they tell you how long you're going to be in there. Mm-hmm. Well, I go in front of the board, and it's led by Lieutenant Strahota, and his name will be important later. Okay. And he reads this ticket, and he looks at me, and he says, if you want to commit suicide, why don't you just hang yourself? Because <laughs> that's how big this guy yeah. is. Like, this guy's a monster, and I'm like this little kid. Yeah. And uh, I'm just like, what? <laughs> it's just like you're like that wasn't the point. <laughs> it was not helpful at all. It actually, it actually made me more violent. Oh wow! Because my whole nobody... life, I felt lied to. Oh. And now here I go to prison, and it's a lie too. Yeah. Like it's not this big violent place that people make it. I'm like, are you kidding me here? Yeah. And so um, for the next year, I just went on this violent rampage. Like, if you looked at me funny, we were fighting. We were oh, just, goodness. I was like, I had this mission to make a name for myself, and that's what I was going to do. So that's you, all I cared about. You basically, like, created what you thought prison 
was supposed to be you created that atmosphere. I did. There. I did. I hung out with a group of 10. There's 10 of us. There's nine other guys plus me. And our only rule was fight, period. We would fight with each other for fun just to get our skills better. Mm -hmm. And then we would pummel anybody in our way. Um, and it was just a very violent lifestyle. Well, there was a guy, a guard, who I had known from uh, outside of prison. Mm -hmm. We're the same age. And he didn't like me over a girl. Oh. Um, and he basically started a fight with me. A guard? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't recommend that you fight the guards because they have lots of friends and you don't. Yeah. And so I I got into it with this guard and then um, got more time in solitary confinement. And while I was in there, when you cover your window, they can't allow you to harm yourself. So they have to do what's called cell entries. Mm -hmm. And so they put a riot team together and they come in the cell and they basically beat on you for a little while. And then they strap you down and you can't move for 24 hours and they gas you. It's all... A bunch wow. of craziness. So I did that, and I did that, and I did that, and I did that some more. Oh, my goodness. And eventually I got pretty good at it. And, well, one time a guard, the guards came in, and I had greased the floor up and rubbed myself down with baby oil. And they're like, they're not going to touch me. Uh -huh. And so they come running in the door, and I jump up on the bed, and I grab the first guy in. He's called Pad One. I grab him by the back of his helmet, and I slam him into the wall. And it destroys his shoulder. Ooh. And so this was a month after the other guard. Mm -hmm. um, and so in Wisconsin, they have this thing called an habitual offender. And if you do a same or similar crime in a short time span, like 30 to 90 days, they can consider you a habitual, which it jumps it up from just being a fight misdemeanor to a felony. Oh. And so they charged me with two counts of battery to correctional officer as a habitual. And so now... I'm in prison, and I'm facing another 25 years. Oh, wow. And I'm like, okay. So I go to court, and the, the guard that I originally got into it, why I was in solitary confinement, gets on the stand, and he lies. Oh. He says, yeah, we knew each other. Yes, this happened, but I was the antagonist, not him. And mm. I was the one that um, sought after him and all of this stuff. Well, about halfway through my jury trial, they, the prison finally produced the tape oh. that had the audio and video on it that showed he was literally antagonizing me and I was trying to yeah. de-escalate the situation. Well, the judge refused to uh, dismiss his testimony oh, to wow. the jury. So I got found guilty and the judge gave me five years consecutive to my nine years for that one and 10 years consecutive to both for the other one. So consecutive means like big plus signs. So nine plus five plus 10 mm -hmm. is 24. So now I'm 19 years old and I have oh. 24 years in prison. Oh my goodness. And because I'm considered an, a violent habitual offender, they put me in solitary confinement indefinitely. Oh wow. Which was part of what got you. Yeah. Yeah. So I spent the next three years in solitary confinement. Oh my goodness. So solitary confinement would be like, go home, lock yourself in your bathroom, and where your bathtub is, that's your bed, and that's all you get. That's okay. your cell. You have a toilet, you have a sink, you have a bed, and you have a small trap in your door that they feed you through. Oh, wow. 
and you have very limited human contact other than the guards coming around and checking on you, and you actually get to know the other inmates by talking through the vents. You rarely ever see them. Oh, wow. And, and that's, like, so not healthy for people. Like, God says it's not good for man to be alone, like, in a sense that we should get married, but also it's just, like, not good for people psychologically to be... I spent three months of that time where we only got light uh, an hour and a half a day. It was a half hour each meal they fed you. Oh, wow. In solid darkness. Oh, my goodness. And then I spent two years where they never turned the lights off. <gasps> and I'll tell you what, I would rather be, like, have the dark than have the light on all the time. Oh, really? It really messes with your mind. Oh, wow. Having the light on all the time. So, um, because there's no sense of time. Yeah. When the light's on 24 hours and it never changes and you can't see outside, your body clock internally gets messed up. Yeah. You never know what time it is. You never know, other than when they feed you. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, this is, it's breakfast time? Really? I thought <laughs> it was like four in the morning. But oh, wow. So, um, I was literally in a battle for my sanity. Yeah. Like, I was going crazy. I watched guys go crazy. And um, when I got sentenced originally, the first time, my grandma was there, and she um, said to me, she said, Michael, when you reach rock bottom, do me a favor and cry out to God. Like, try God. Mm -hmm. And I remember at that time thinking, I just got nine years in prison. This lady's crazy. This (laughs) is rock bottom. My grandma had a lot of wisdom, let Uh me tell you. Because about two and a half years into solitary confinement, I was sitting on the floor crying like a big baby. I'm supposed to be this big, bad, tough guy in prison. I'm sitting there crying like a baby, battling for my sanity. And those words from my grandma came back to me. Mm. And it's been, you've been in prison like almost three years now? I had been in prison about five and a half years. Okay. Now. And so in five and a half years, like now those words come back yes. to you. When I'm in solitary confinement after two and a half years, when I'm battling for my sanity, going through all of this stuff, I'm sitting there and I'm just like, I'm believing what the world says about me, that Mm -hmm. I'm useless, that I'm a criminal, that there's no hope for me, um, that I'm just a violent person. And I remember standing up, looking in the mirror, and the mirrors there are metal mirrors, so you know Mm -hmm. they're already kind of distorted. And I remember screaming at myself at the top of my lungs, I hate you, I hate you, I hate everything about you, it's not who you're supposed to be. I wrote a poem called Monster in the Mirror, mm-hmm. uh, and it got published nationally, oh, and wow. it, it won some awards, and it was just a raw, intimate look at what how I hated myself, yeah. basically. Yeah. This monster that I saw in the mirror that was not supposed to be who I envisioned I was supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, and I remember two and a half years into sitting on the floor, crying like a baby, and my, those words came back, and... Being the person who I am who challenges everything and rebels against everything, I remember thinking, okay, God, if you're real, if, mm-hmm. you're going to have to change me. Because everything I try to do, I just break. Mm-hmm. So you need to change me. So again, challenging God, not something I recommend. Yeah. However. But that's like also kind of a good place to be, to be like, God, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. Like that's not exactly yes. where you were, but you were saying like, no, I, I was super vulnerable. Yeah, I was yeah. there. Uh-huh. I was definitely broken. And I knew in that moment I was either going to lose my mind and become everything they said I was uh-huh. or God would change me. Wow. But I didn't believe God would change yeah. me. Yeah. And so I can't say I heard these words like you hear me talking mm-hmm. to you right now. Because it's more like I felt these words with every fiber of my being, like down to my soul. Mm-hmm. I, f- I felt these words enough. It's over. Get up. Oh, wow. And I remember sitting there freezing, like like I froze. Uh-huh. 
And every hair in my body stood up. And I was like, oh, man, I'm either crazy, I really lost my mind, <laughs> or God is real. Wow. And in that split second, I was like, man, I hope I'm going crazy. Because if God is real, I just lived the last 21 years against him. 22 uh-huh. and a half years, whatever it was, against him. Yeah. And I would rather be crazy than knowing I've lived my life against the God who created everything. Oh, wow. And so I was like super scared. I remember getting up and the guard uh, was doing his rounds and he came by and he comes up to the window and they called me Chucky after like the little doll oh, from yeah. the movie Child's Play because that's how I violent I was. It was like this little <laughs> murderous doll. Little yeah, I was just a short little guy. <laughs> by this time, I was like a whole five foot six, 140 pounds. So, you oh, know, so you grew. I was big now. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, I didn't reach 5'10 until I was 25. Oh, wow. It was, yeah. I was this little violent kid. It was very funny looking back on it. <laughs> well, this guard comes up and I'm like, hey, can I get a Bible? And he looks at me, this big guard. He was like 6'2, 6'3, uh-huh. 270, like this big guy, right? He just looks at me and he goes, Chucky wants a what? Like this high pitch, like middle school boy. He could not believe it. He's like, Chucky wants a what? You want a what? He just starts laughing. Yeah. And walks away. And I'm like, no, I really want a Bible. Well, he comes back after he does his rounds and he opens the trap and he hands me a Bible and he's just dying laughing. Yeah. He's like, I can't believe you want a Bible. Yeah. Like, what is wrong with you? So I gr- you had made that name for yourself. I did. Yeah. I did. And so he, he, um, sits down or I sit down on the bed after he hands me the Bible and I remember holding the Bible in my hand like this I'm holding it right in my hand and I'm like okay God if that was really you because I don't believe it was if that was really you I'm going to open this Bible and you're going to answer this question I have remember I was losing my mind so 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 you got to forgive me here I'm like okay God I'm open this Bible and you're going to answer this question but I'm not going to say the question in my head because if you're God you can read my mind again I was going crazy yeah. right? so I open the Bible and like we do in the Western culture, we read from left to right. Uh-huh. So I read the left page, and I was like, ha, ah, that's what I thought. Uh-huh. And then just something prompted me. Like, I didn't hear words or anything. But something prompted me to read the other side. Mm-hmm. And so I got halfway down the page, and I read the scripture that answered the question I had. And I remember throwing the Bible across the room. Oh, wow. I was like, whoa. <laughs> You're like, no, that is no. I can't do this. Because up to this point, you hadn't ever really experienced God. Like Never experienced, never had an encounter with God until that until that half hour right here that we're in. Wow. And so then I was like, okay, I calmed down a little bit. And I'm like, whew, well, if that's God, I probably shouldn't be holding, throwing his scriptures around, right? <laughs> and so oh, I God. pick it up and I sit down and I'm like, all right, um, I'm going to try this again. I have this answer or I have this question. And I open the Bible and he answered it. Oh, wow. And, and so what were these questions? I don't remember all of them. Some of them were like, why did you create me? Um, why am I so violent? Mm. Like, why did my parents get divorced? Like, simple things. Some of them yeah. were simple. Some of them were harder. And I just remember, like, I opened the Bible, and I did this for a whole week. Oh, wow. And I don't re- recommend that you challenge God in this way, but in this moment is how he was speaking to me. Yeah, because God meets us where we are, like... And there was no one there yeah. besides me. Yeah. So and you so could, it's not like somebody could come in and answer your questions for you. It had to be like. It had to be God. Yeah. And so he did. And then a week later, as I'm doing this, Captain Strahota, remember the guy yeah. originally? So I'm in a whole different prison. Oh, wow. And now he's in charge of segregation. Now he's known me for a long time. Uh-huh. And he comes up to me and he's like, hey, Chucky, if 
um, you behave for the next six months, I'll let you out of prison. Now, I was on administrative confinement, which means I'm there indefinitely. Oh, wow. I have no outdate of solitary confinement. Oh. And so I remember sitting on the bed thinking, okay, God, <laughs> like, really? You're going to, like, release me from prison? I remember in that moment when I was reading the Bible is when I was like, that's when I repented of my sin. Like, God, I'm sorry. You need to take this from me. I can't do this. That's the moment that I repented. Mm -hmm. Remember I said I got baptized when I was 11, but that is not the moment of my conversion. Yeah, no. The moment of my conversion was truly in that cell when I repented of my sins. Mm -hmm. And I remember going back and because I remembered verses like John 3, 16 and, you know, the ones Romans you learned 5 and Romans 10. And, yeah, I remembered some of those. So I remember I would go back and start reading them and... I remember reading the gospel for the first time. And I don't mean like the first four books of the Bible, but the actual message of the gospel mm -hmm. that I was a sinner born into sin. And because of my sin, I deserve death. Mm -hmm. And that death needed to be paid for. My sin needed to be paid for. And God sacrificed his son to pay for my sin on the cross. Mm -hmm. I remember reading that the first time like, wow. This is real. The gospel is real. I am this sinner that they have talked about. I've sinned against God. Not, not just all the wrongdoing I've done against man, but I have been sinning against God, the God who created me. Mm -hmm. And he gave his son that I could become a part of his kingdom, that I could be an inheritor of his kingdom, that I could be made in right standing with him, that his blood flowed to cover my sin. I was just blown away. Yeah, because that, that really is like a beautiful thought, you know? And so I just remember from that moment on, I started living for God. Not that I did everything right, because I'm yeah. still in a very violent place with a very violent reputation. <laughs> um, and when you try to change for God in a place that is full of just demonic and satanic power, because there's a lot of power in prison, that Satan has. I'm sure. Just through oppression and all of the stuff that he's done, there's a very huge demonic presence in prison. Wow. And when you start living for God... Satan doesn't like that. Satan does not like that. And so I just remember it being super hard in the beginning, but I just clung to the gospel. And then I started reading a lot about Paul. And you know there's people who have like life verses and, yeah. and all of these things. Well, I have a section of the Bible that is... Uh, that really spoke to me then and still is true for me uh, to this day. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, starting in verse 12. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And grace and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Mm. Like that just spoke to me because I remember feeling like I am the worst sinner ever. Yeah. And that's just the, that's what the enemy wants us to believe, that nobody else has gone through this. No one else mm -hmm. has done this. I've obviously since 
uh, come out of that? Well, I started living for him in prison, started going to church, started doing his correspondence courses online. I started, I, I, I met this guy named Royce Minich. He was still in prison. He has life plus 50 years. He's never getting out. Um, but he is a light for Christ in Aww. prison. And he became my accountability partner. And we just started studying scripture together. And I started living for the Lord for years. That's awesome. And then that's so awesome that like even in prison, like you're saying, even though there's all those demonic forces, like God still has his people there. He does that are spreading his light and spreading yeah. the gospel. And I remember um, by this time now, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I had fought my case because that guard lied. And, and so yeah. I took my case, went all the way to the Supreme Court. You can actually read my case. Oh, wow. And I thought this was how God was going to release me because that takes a lot of years to mm -hmm. do that. I'm like, well, you know, I'm living for him now. I'm doing all this stuff. He's going to release me through this. I was working actually for security for Captain Strahota. Uh -huh. um, like he had hired me. I'd changed so much now oh, wow. that like they believed in me and, and hired me. And so um, I got a letter from the Supreme Court and they denied my appeal two oh, to wow. one. And the reason they denied it was because they didn't want to set precedence. Not because oh. I wasn't right, oh, but they just didn't want to set a precedence. Uh-huh. I remember being devastated, and I took this letter into to work in the prison. I'm still in the prison, and I throw it down on Royce's desk, and my desk is across from his. We both work in security, and I just sat down, and he read the letter, and he came around, and he just put his hand on my shoulder, and he was like, brother, if this is where God wants you to be, then you need to be the best evangelist for him that you can be. Aww. Like, be the best light here. Yeah. And I remember it took a couple days for that really to sink in because I was devastated. Yeah. So I'm sitting on my bed, and I'm just praying one day. It was like three days later. And I was like, okay, God, if this is where you want me to be, then that's that's what I'm going to do. I give it all to you. This is where for your glory. This is what I'm going to do. So I just started going on with my life. This is where I'm going to be, right? Ten months later, I got a letter from the circuit court judge. That's the judge who originally sentenced me. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said that he had followed my the appellate process, mm -hmm. and he wanted to review the sentence that he had given me. Mm -hmm. And so um, he called me down there. I went down to the, the county that I was you know, prosecuted in, and it's a blizzard out. It's... Uh, February 21st of 2006, it was, I just remember it being a blizzard and it was crazy. <laughs> Sheriffs come and pick me up. Like most of the court is closed. There's nobody else in the courtroom. Uh, there's the district attorney, there's the judge, there's his court staff, there's me, and they'd given me a pro bono attorney. And then there's my mom and stepdad who I hadn't seen in 10 years. Oh, wow. They drove up in this blizzard oh, for this goodness. court day. It was really crazy. And so we're sitting there, and because I'm already found guilty, the DA gets to speak first. So he stands up, and he's like, I wasn't the district attorney at the time that this happened, so judge, I will go with whatever your recommendation is. I have no problem. Mm. But I have a letter from one of the victims, one of the guards. Oh. And I'm like, great. Really? Like, they haven't messed my life up enough. Like, this, <laughs> that the human thoughts come back in, yeah. right? Like, yeah. no trusting in God at all. And so he starts reading this letter. And the, it was the one guard that I had smashed into the wall. Oh. Uh, he was a lieutenant now. His name is Lieutenant Koenig. He's since retired, I'm sure. The gist of the letter was this. was a three-page letter. He said, I'm a Christian. Mm -hmm. I believe people can change. I believe God can change people. Oh, wow. And I have watched Mr. Heckerl's prison career, is what he called it. And uh -huh. I've never seen anybody change their life around as much as he did. Oh, wow. 
And I was like blown away. The judge is blown. Everyone's just yeah. like quiet in the courtroom. And the judge is like, can I see that letter? And, and they hand him the letter. He's like, I need to go back in my chain chambers and deliberate uh-huh. about this. I need to think about this. So he goes back in there. And I'm telling you what, he was only in there 10 minutes. That 10 minutes was longer than my entire prison sentence. <laughs> right? That 10 minutes was forever. He comes out and he's like, in light of this letter and in light of how you've been living your life, um, I want to modify the sentence I've given you. He's like, I ran every, I'm not going to change the amount of time, like the five years and the 10 years. I'm going to change how I gave it to you. Mm -hmm. And so I want to pause there for a second. So what I did in security was I would get inmates time and I would calculate it Mm -hmm. and I would put it in the computer system. I did that eight to 10 hours a day, six days a week. Mm -hmm. That's what I did all the time. Yeah. So, so the judge is like, I'm going to run all of your time concurrent. I originally ran it consecutive. I'm going to run the five years concurrent and the 10 years concurrent. Well, concurrent means the largest number you have pretty much eats up the small numbers. Like okay. They don't exist. And he's like, I don't know what that means for you getting out, but this is what I'm going to do. So I knew in three seconds what it meant. Oh, wow. And everybody else in there didn't. And I'm just like blown away. I can't believe what was happening. We get back in the sheriff's uh car and it's the two county the two deputies and they're taking me back and we're silent like it's just dead quiet for uh-huh. probably 10 minutes and then the guy the sheriff deputy that's sitting in the passenger seat he turns around and looks at me he's like what just happened and so i start to explain it to him and then the other guy who's driving literally turns around and looks at me while he's driving uh-huh. in a blizzard and he's <laughs> like i have been doing this 25 years and i've never heard of that oh, ever wow. i cannot believe this is happening uh-huh and so we get back to the prison. Now, when you get to prison, anytime you leave and come in, you go through intake. Mm-hmm. Intake usually has two to three guards. They have a bunch of cells. You come in, you get strip searched. You have to do a shower, like a lice bath, and all these things because they don't want disease things coming yeah. into prison. And it's normal, normal process. I get in. We walk in to intake. There's no other inmates there, and there's like 25 guards standing there, including Captain Strahoda, and they just start clapping. <gasps> So they had already gotten the facts. Oh wow. The fact the the, About the your, court had faxed yeah. it over. So what what it meant was um you were done. He just gave me a ten year sentence. Uh-huh. And on that day I had eleven years, three months already served. So you were done. So the next day at nine o'clock in the morning I was released from prison free and clear. Oh my goodness. So if I would have gotten my appellate uh-huh. like I wanted I would have had to go back to court. I would have had to have a retrial. I would have had to all do all these things again. Oh, wow. And instead, God said, watch what I can do. And that he released so amazing. me free like, and clear from prison. That's, like, so, like, awesome. Because, like, sometimes, you know, we pray for things, and we don't even know what we should be praying for. Because you didn't even, like, nope. think that that could be an option. And God's like, nah, I'm going to do it the quick way. You just... Watch this. That's so awesome. And so that's that's crazy in itself, right? Here's what's super crazy. A year later, I was working, coaching, and then running a ministry at the same school that I went to prison from. Oh, wow. I wouldn't have been able to do that. No. If I was still battling for court and doing these things. Yeah. I coached football, boys varsity football, boys varsity basketball, and girls varsity softball there for the next 10 years. Oh, wow. And ran a ministry that saw, on average, 150 kids come over a week during their lunch hour voluntarily that didn't know Christ. Oh, wow. That's so awesome. And it was, so when people ask me, how have you seen God move? I have 
probably conservatively 200 stories of seeing God move that I left out of that. Oh, wow. In the time frame. I mean, I'm married with two kids, uh-huh. one kid that's almost 20, 19 years old, um, like that is that are doing well. We're here in Idaho now, which is a place that I hated, <laughs> right? We talked yeah. about that. The only thing yeah. I knew was Emmett, Idaho, and I hated it. <laughs> um, running a ministry, now being a pastor um, for over a decade, uh, going to one of the top Christian colleges in the nation. Oh, wow. Like just things that... That you're like, you never would have seen that or planned that for yourself, but God all God along, opened it all. He's like, yeah. got you. So the craziness of God in my life is very evident, and there is no no one that could ever tell me that God doesn't exist. No. Um, scripture tells us that, but there's lots of people out there that know Scripture that don't believe God mm-hmm. and that can talk circles around it. But they can never take your encounter with him away. No, they it's, can't. It's like Paul on the Damascus Road. Uh-huh. Who could, after that moment, tell Paul God wasn't real when yeah. God literally spoke to him, blinded him, and then removed the blinding uh-huh. a few days later? Like, who could ever tell Paul God's not real? <laughs> I mean, they could tell him that, but he's not going to listen. Because yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't talk around somebody's encounter experience. No, you like can't. That. And that's what God gave me. He gave me that Damascus Road experience where I encountered him in a prison cell, and then encountered him, and encountered him, and encountered him throughout those uh-huh. those years. And I think as we learn to see it, and we learn to like recognize it, God just keeps saying, "Okay, I'm going to do another thing in your life. I'm going to do another thing in your life." And as long as we're walking with Him. He just keeps doing stuff. He does. And the more you learn to look for where he's at work, the more he reveals it. I know. Because I've like, I just gave my testimony last week. And like, just even just giving that and speaking that, I was like, oh, wow, that really was God in that moment. Like, I was mad or angry or hurt in that moment. But I'm like, that was God in that moment. Yeah. I think that's awesome. But thank you so much for sharing because I know you're extremely busy. Of course. (laughs) But yeah, everyone just remember God is real and God is good. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.